This episode kicks off season three, a focus on race in the United States. I can't believe my good fortune to launch this season with an interview of renowned historian Graham Russell Hodges, uh, whose work has been uh, seminal in my understanding of slavery in the North, uh, particularly with his focus on New Jersey and New York. Uh, Professor Hodges is at Colgate University. His most recent books are The Marion Thompson Wright Reader, which he edited, and Black New Jersey. Uh, take a listen to this next hour of fantastic chat. Graham Hodges, welcome to Bob's Just Asking. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. What attracted you to the study of race in the United States? And has your focus been on the Northeastern United States because of a relative lack of attention given to it by other historians? Uh, that's a complicated question, but I'll be glad to give my best shot at it. I think my own interest uh, started back in the late 60s when I was a student at a university, and there was a, a very attractive teaching assistant whom I had a big crush on, uh, who asked the question of the class, what does it mean that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves? And I was really blown away by this question because I absolutely did not have an answer. And, you know, 50 years later, we're still answering that question. And I did a whole book on Jefferson and Tadeusz Kosciuszko and Agrippa Hull, uh, trying to answer the question. I've done my part on that. But I think that was a, a start for it. I mean, I think I also I was, you know, a 60s kid. So uh, music influenced me. The civil rights movement absolutely influenced me. But if I had to say there was a point in which I really started thinking about it harder, it was that question. Uh, now, about the Northeast in New Jersey, uh, my first book was on New York City cartmen, who were drivers of two-wheeled carts in New York City, uh, from the 16th into the 19th century. Uh, and they, they I, was, I understood them pretty well because I'd driven a cab for five years, and they operated under similar regulations. Um, then I, found, I got my PhD to do with that at NYU, and then uh, not getting a job. That was a pretty bad time, although today is worse. I don't argue that. Uh, I got a job working on the William Livingston papers, and Livingston was the revol first revolutionary and patriot governor of New Jersey. Uh, and one of the letters that I was assigned to annotate was from a group of people in Monmouth County uh, complaining to Livingston about a, uh, a guy named Colonel Ty. And we operated there on the, uh, the method that Julian Boyd introduced in the papers of Thomas Jefferson, is that every name has to be researched. Every, every place has to have some kind of annotation. Okay? Uh, so I started getting into Colonel Ty, uh, who was uh, an enslaved person who ran away from his master, John Corley's, near Shrewsbury in 1775, right about the same time that Lord Dunmore made his proclamation offering freedom to slaves who were willing to fight for the British Army. Uh, and then Ty later returned to uh, New Jersey uh, raided a number of Patriot homes, kidnapped the Patriots, took their cows, took their uh, 
uh, their gold plate, their silver plate, took uh, uh, all kinds of supplies and sold them to the British. He did this for several years, including the time when I uh, mentioned in that letter, uh, before he was killed in the famous battle trying to capture Josiah Huddy uh, in 1780. So getting into that, you know, I, was, I wasn't really looking for a second project because I was just trying to get my first book published. Uh, but I realized there was something really fascinating there uh, and that New Jersey history had been done, black history had been done a little bit, but not a lot. Uh, and things that, nothing really had been done in a long, long time. Uh, the first study of black New Jersey or slavery in New Jersey was done in the 1890s. Uh, so I began to look backwards from the revolution uh, to the time of the first arrival of African-Americans in the, in the colony in the 1680s. And then forward, uh, I took that book up until uh, 1865. Uh, but I retained interest in it. Now I've done several books on Black history of New Jersey, including uh, Black New Jersey, which came out two years ago, which goes from 1680 up to 2020, or 2018, excuse me. Uh, so, I mean, I've kind of gotten into the whole coverage of African-Americans in New Jersey as a result of that document, uh, th which is now almost 40 years ago. So that's kind of uh, complicated, but I hope uh, insightful answer to my, answer to your question. Oh, definitely. I, uh, I'm embarrassed to admit I never heard of Colonel Ty until about, I don't know, three months ago. <laughs> and uh, we'll definitely be incorporating uh, his story into, uh, you know, in, into my, into the next time that I, that I teach uh, that well, people love Colonel Ty. Oh, it was a great uh, story. I mean, he was, I learned about him first from Benjamin Quarles, the, one of the deans of black history. Taught, he did a terrific book called The Negro and the American Revolution back in 1961. Uh, he has a little bit on, and I found out a lot more about Ty. And he's now kind of a staple of black revolutionary history because he's so interesting. You know, there's a guy, I mean, I'll just, just let me just talk about him for a second. Here's a guy whose master was a Quaker, but not a good Quaker. He was a Quaker who liked to drink, he liked to gamble. He was known to get into fist fights. This is all contrary to friends' uh, theology. Uh, and he owned slaves. After 1755, the Philadelphia Minute, which incorporated Shrewsbury, uh, a minute is kind of like an organization, uh, decided they're going to convince. Uh, members to relinquish their slaves. Corleese didn't do that, nor did his mother Zilpha. So members of the Society of Friends went out to Corleese's farm to talk to him. And they didn't just drop by and hand him a pamphlet and take off. They usually stayed for hours debating the whole issue theologically and what it meant to be a friend and what it meant to be a slave owner. Uh, and I'm sure that Titus, Colonel Ty, who was then known as Titus, heard all of this. So this is a remarkable transference between Quaker abolitionism in the 1770s and African-American resistance, because this man then takes that information, hears about Lord Dunmore's proclamation through the underground, through the, really the uh, kind of a, a pipeline, uh, and then goes off to Virginia to fight and then comes back up north to fight again. So, I mean, this is really how ideology and theology come into actual practice. Hmm. Uh, so he's a fascinating character. And and my understanding, one one of about 20,000 
black people who ended up serving for uh, you know on the other side in in the war. Well, that number is elastic. Uh, one of the most conservative estimates was done by Cassandra Pibus, uh, and a, a good article she wrote the William Murray Quarterly, which said fifteen thousand. Quarrel said a hundred thousand. Really, kind of hard to measure. I would say twenty thousand or better. I mean, people got killed. They left left for Native American country. They weren't registered. They got off on boats, which they've been doing for decades. So a lot of those people never were really recorded. But we do have good records on about 18,000 of them. So there were probably more than that. But just, again, the number is is indeterminate. But uh, it's certainly the largest enslaved revolt before the Civil War. It, 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 you have to see it in that light, that the revolution was a black revolution. And they were going for very similar things to what the Patriots wanted, but they had the added desire to re- get rid of, rid of the chains of slavery, just as they did in the Civil War. Now, is it, um, in reading about, uh, obviously there's, there's fairly obvious reasons why uh, many of them would uh, want to revolt, uh, of course, um, Dunbar's proclamation, uh, my understanding, was specific to Virginia, but were there, there were similar ones for other parts of the country? Well, he basically opened it up uh, to what he said is that the enslaved people uh, belonging to those masters anywhere. Okay? But, I mean, his reach was a lot of Virginia, although we see Ty coming down there as well. But then that's repeated again in what's called the Phillipsburg Proclamation. Uh, by Generals Clinton and Howe around New York in 1779. And if you go back and look at uh, the New Jersey newspapers and uh, the New York newspapers, um, that proclamation is in there every week for about a year. So, I mean, it was something that any black person with access to literacy, their own or somebody else's, could read and know that they could find freedom inside the British lines. And given that New Jersey was a war-torn state uh, with sizable amounts of territory known as uh, neutral zones, where there was really no control, uh, it wasn't all that hard to get in there. And then once they were there, they were protected by the British Army. Um, Recently, I edited, uh, for the second time, a book called uh, The Book of Negroes. Uh, And this is a pretty fascinating document. Uh, This was... uh, well, in 1783, when Washington, George Washington, uh, and uh, Sir Guy Carleton, the British commander, are negotiating the final terms of the Treaty of Paris, Washington points to Article 7, which are, talks about the return of property. Now, this was not entirely possible because a lot of the property was gone, destroyed, whatever. And both sides eventually had uh, account books where people could go and sort of register their claims and maybe get some money back. But Washington was really interested in enslaved people because he had quite a few who did run away from him. Uh, And so, you know, he said, what about them? And Carlton said, they're gone. And Washington was very chagrined. He said, gone, you say? And that started a dispute that lasted into the 1820s because the Americans felt that the British had stolen their property. The British, in contrast, and Carlton was very explicit about this, 
felt that to relink, to send people back uh, would be to dishonor the king because proclamations have been made first by a governor and then by two major generals offering sanctuary. And to simply turn that back, well, that would be very dishonorable. So they agreed to make up a ledger of the people leaving in New York from 1783. There had already been a thousand or so left for Nova Scotia the year before. Uh, and the agreement was that everybody would be interviewed before they get on the boat. And if they couldn't demonstrate somehow that they had been uh, fighting for the British before 1782, they'd be turned back to the Americans. And some people were. But upwards of 3,000 black people left for Nova Scotia and are listed in this book of Negroes. And so I just uh, uh, re-edited that uh, with Fordham University Press. It came out a few months ago. It's a very nice book. You can find it uh, if you look at any of the major dealers. Uh, so, I mean, that, that story remains complicated by American uh, resentment, uh, feeling that they've been cheated, that they should be paid for this, and the British position that, you know, they're a government, they offered these people freedom, and once they were inside British lines, they were free. Eventually, interestingly enough, the Americans begin to take the same view. John Jay spearheads that idea. And gradually they begin to accept that, yeah, if, if somebody is taken that way and goes over and willingly stays with the other side, they become, if not citizens, at least free within that side's uh, uh, purview. This reoccurs again in the War of 1812, when 5,000 enslaved people run away from uh, Virginia masters again and go on to British boats, go up to Nova Scotia, and later some go to uh, Sierra Leone. So again, there's a hassle, and that's when they actually turned the whole issue over to uh, the Tsar of Russia, who arbitrated it for the English and the Americans. And he kind of hedged on it and said that the English had some good points, but the Americans should get some money. It's unclear if they ever got any of it. Uh, the issue kind of lapses. Now, where I think this becomes powerfully fascinating, uh, and James Oakes has written very interestingly enough on this, on uh, the scorpion sting, is that that added per perception goes into abolitionist thought, is argued for by... John Jay Jr. in 1839, and then becomes part of the rationale for Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. So it's got an incredible story and a great lineage and applications that connect the two wars in ways I think they should be definitely connected. Wow, there's a lot. <laughs> you give me a lot to chew on for that. Uh, yeah. Let me let me back way up, though, yeah. and ask uh, a super generic question, which, uh, you know, I was a history major, and uh, I I don't know how much of uh, of my decision to become a teacher or you know, to change directions to some extent was based on my own difficulties in trying to wrap my head around the discipline of being a historian. So... Yeah. Uh, recently, I've been doing uh, research on the history of enslaved people in New Jersey, and it's challenging to find useful sources. So uh, what kind of resources have you been able to rely upon uh, for, you know, for your work in this area? Well, New Jersey is actually especially good because we have a terrific archive, a terrific library, 
there are uh, historical societies in most counties. I'm going to be speaking before one in Monmouth County next week. I mean, these, these are really great organizations, and they, they have records. Um, New Jersey also published for many years an annual volume, which at one point included hundreds of, of fugitive slave notices. And I incorporated a lot of those into a book I call Pretends to be Free, which also has been reissued. It's a compilation of about 800 runaway slave notices from New York and New Jersey. Uh, so there's that, uh, that, that, that extraordinary source. Those are the laws, which are all very well compiled. Um, there are tax registers, which are really good. Um, the censuses in New Jersey were, were quite good. Um, there are a lot of travelogues, people coming in, talking about what they saw, uh, and writing it down and, and you know, publishing in a book. There are a fair number of those as well. Uh, we also have, because of the Gradual Emancipation Act of 1804, registers of free people for every county where there were slaves. Okay? Uh, so, I mean, I think actually New Jersey is especially good mm-hmm. at the accessibility of records on black people. There's just a, a lot of stuff. I guess my question is really, what's the next step? You know, I've seen those records, some of those records. I've seen manumission records and, you know, birth certificates and, and you know, it's, how does, uh, without the uh, fortune of finding journals or letters that are, that spell all of that stuff out, uh, how does how does the historian go about piecing that sort of thing? To, you know, piecing your narratives together that you have in sure. in I mean, branch. And sometimes so when you get the case of Colonel Ty, he writes the narrative. I mean, he's a, he attaches himself to American revolutionary history. Okay, uh, when you find out about someone like John Rock, uh, who was very instrumental in the 1840s in abolition societies in New Jersey and a staunch member of the free black community goes up to Boston and uh, actually winds up being a lawyer and uh, practicing before the Supreme Court of the United States. He's the first black person to do that. Again, the narrative writes itself. I mean, they're there and you simply take that and you bring it into a long skein of such things and create a narrative about what black life was like in New Jersey. Um, And I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying that it's definitely possible. Now, uh, I'm not the only person who's done this, and that's why I want to say that, uh, so that people realize that uh, what I am arguing is not the only truth, although I think what I say stands up pretty well. Uh, you got a guy named James Gigantino down at the University of Arkansas, who's written more about the texture of slavery, the extents of slavery. I think he learned a lot from my book, books, uh, but he went a little bit further, and I think he argues pretty well that slavery cast a dismal shadow over uh, black people in New Jersey. I think that's true, um, but I think there's a lot more to it. And for that, we look, for example, at a book by Kenneth Marshall, uh, who teaches up at Oswego, and he writes, you got the book right there, right? I, I have it somewhere. Yeah, here it is. Yeah, it's a terrific book, and he writes about black manhood. Yeah, he's a great guy. He, he writes about black manhood and takes a number of examples to show how black men were able to sustain themselves under a horrific system. And that's a new story. Uh, uh, Certainly there are are many more like that. 
okay, that, that we we could we can do. And I and I I'm not saying that you know that uh, that my job my, my books are, are don't have staying value. I think they do, but there's always a, a new interpretation. Got it. Now your introduction to Root and Branch African Americans in New York and East Jersey includes a uh, a closing statement of sorts that says religion, slave culture, and resistance were at the heart of the African-American experience. When I began teaching in the early 1990s, I was largely oblivious to these factors and have to admit that I was guilty of depicting slavery as essentially an unending series of atrocities done. It was. Well, yeah. You were right. <laughs> but limiting it to that. Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, it gave my students the impression that the enslaved were nothing more than hapless victims. Yeah. So I'm curious, as a you know, as a a college professor, uh, did, have you found that your college that your students rather uh, come to you with that kind of impression, and has that changed at all over time? That's a good question. Uh, I think they know more. I, I think that. Uh, the kind of students I get at Colgate who are generally pretty well prepared, uh, who have gone through a lot of critical thinking in their high schools, and uh, you know, they know more of this than I did when I was a child, certainly. And I know you're younger than I am, but probably a lot more than you did when you were going through. Uh, that said, I mean, they they don't know all of it, and it depends on just how much they're interested in history, too, uh, which could be some or a lot, not a lot. Uh, but there, it, it's not hard for them to grasp because they have now been taught and understand that slavery was a horrific institution uh, and that it lasted a long time and that there were black freedom struggles throughout that time. And some of it has to do with the black church. Okay? Some of it has to do with the various insurrections, uh, which include include in New Jersey, uh, the attempted plot in 18, 1734, uh, some participation in 1741, the revolution itself. And then later you have things in uh, Virginia and South Carolina, uh, Gabriel's Rebellion and then uh, Denmark Vesey. They, they kind of know a lot of that, I, I think. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. I know I'm thinking about this last term when I did a course in the American Revolution and uh, they said they had been taught a lot of this stuff. So I think they're better than I was when I was their age, but the job isn't done yet. And according to recent headlines, there are people who would like to cut it out entirely, and I think that's terribly wrong. Yeah. Now, before I read uh, Root and Branch, I was completely uh, oblivious to what you described as the fluidity of race relations in New Amsterdam. Uh, can you talk about how much different life was in connection to race under the Dutch versus the British? Um, the Dutch have a paradoxical role in the history of slavery. They were among the original slave traders. They taught the English everything they knew about slave trading. Okay, and the English basically piggy piggyback on the Dutch uh, routes and, uh, and, and shipping methods. Uh, but the Dutch come to the New World and establish New Amsterdam. They badly need labor. Uh, they kidnap a number of free blacks from the West Indies and the coast of, uh, of uh, South, South America, take them up there and then employ them first as kind of city laborers. Actually, company laborers is more accurate. Uh, and then 
those people don't see themselves as enslaved. And slavery doesn't exist as a phenomenon, a legal phenomenon in New Amsterdam any more than it really does at that point in Virginia. The laws have not been codified. Okay? There isn't a universal perception that a black person is a slave as there will be in the 18th century. Okay? Uh, it's not the only form of labor. Uh, that changes by the 1650s. So back, go back to the second of those free blacks. They eventually become free. Okay? Again, kind of a half freedom. Um, and some of their children and grandchildren uh, who live in the area of Manhattan right around oh, the West Village and Bowery uh, move out to New Jersey. They move to Bergen County. They also move up to Columbia County and upstate, upstate New York, uh, up Colony, New York. Okay, so they leave. Okay, so they actually establish a free black class at last well into the 19th century. Okay, uh, but they're replaced in New Amsterdam. And if you think about New Jersey as kind of part of New Amsterdam, because as the English take over, it becomes that way. But before that, Petra Stuyvesant had a plan that was going to, to, to import enslaved people from Africa and then sell them to New England, to New Jersey, uh, farmers, to far away as Maryland and Virginia. He really thought, he, he thought that uh, New Amsterdam would become what Charleston, South Carolina later became, which is a principal depot in North America for importing slaves. So the, Brit the, the Dutch, in a way, it owned in, in, enslaved people during a time when slavery has not been codified when there are greater chances for manumission, the numbers are smaller, and there was also the question of baptism. And this is the thing where things get very theological, because in the 17th century, Protestant religions believed that baptized people should not be slaves. Okay? So enslaved people wanted to be baptized. They thought that was, you know, a ticket out. Uh, and the, the Dutch did not want to give them to because they thought that was a worldly concern. Um, but that's a concern. So eventually the Dutch say, well, you know, if the slaves were caught in a just war, and if they were prisoners of war and it was a you know, war, then they could be enslaved. There are all these methods by which they could kind of parse the whole issue of baptism. But it's really the English who put the nail in the coffin of that belief in Jersey and then a few years later in New York in the early part of the 18th century when laws are passed saying that baptism does not disturb one's civil condition. That is to say, you can be baptized, but you will not become free. Okay? Uh, and this is a, a real, I, I call this in Root and Branch a, a, a genuinely revolutionary perception or argument because, I mean, it's, uh, it's pushing aside centuries of theological understanding. Uh, the Spanish Catholics similarly had an, uh, an issue with, but there are a lot more ways of gaining manumission within Spanish enslaved society. It's, it's very brutal, but there are more means than there were certainly in New York and New Jersey. And we were speaking before about slavery not being codified by the early 18th century. It is sharply codified in both colonies and codified in ways which make it almost impossible for a person to gain manumission. It's basically, it's a one in a million shot. Uh, you have to 
Basically, your master has to grant you a certain amount of money, 250 pounds that we put up to make sure you're not going to become a charge on public uh, service. If it's a if it's a will, then the uh, uh, the inheritors have a right to, to challenge this. Uh, once it's actually clear that the person could be emancipated, it has to be signed off by those people who are interested parties, by an alderman in New York City, by the mayor, and by the governor. And that's pretty lot. And there's still, you have to come up with this 250 pounds, which is a colossal amount of money uh, in, um, in, in early New Jersey and in, in New York. So the Dutch, the other thing about the Dutch is that once the English take over, the Dutch are discriminated against by the English in terms of uh, land allocations. They get less. Okay. The English get 100 acres plus more acres for family members and for uh, servants, that is to say slaves. The Dutch don't get those kind of deals. So uh, you get farmers in Bergen County, for example. I remember this one fellow. I was, you know, he had about half an acre. And this is an estate, his probate records. Another way you can find out a lot about these people. Yeah, so he had about a half an acre. His entire estate, this is about 1710, was 29 pounds. Of that, of 14 pounds was allocated to an enslaved person. So that enslaved person was worth as much as the land that he owned, okay? and was probably his most, well, it was basically his most important property, more than any you know furniture he had, more than anything that he was growing, more than any animals that he had, was that enslaved person. And for that reason, Dutch slave masters are the most intransigent about emancipation going up into the 19th century, uh, you will still find substantial numbers of enslaved people belonging to Dutch masters in the 1820s and 1830s. And even later, in very odd cases, but they do occur, They're just, they just don't see that they have to do it. And it really it goes against all of their, their property sensibilities. That fellow was not alone uh, in understanding that the enslaved person was the most valuable property he had. And I uh, recently, I mean, among my research, I've been you know reading about Samuel Sutphin, uh, who served as a substitute, as you know, for yeah. his enslaver uh, in the Revolutionary War, and then got screwed out of his pension for quite some time. Um, but I was surprised to learn that his primary language was Dutch. Um, and I gather it's for the sort of a, an outgrowth of what you're talking about there of, uh, you know, that these enslaved people were isolated, living with the descendants of Dutch settlers and never or rarely had the opportunity to speak English. Well, everyone was isolated. Yeah. Uh, it, it, Newark doesn't really become an important mill town supplying uh, grain to New York City until the 1820s. Uh, there's a dissertation that was written a number of years ago, which I found very plausible. And the, the author looked at several Dutch Reformed congregations, uh, one in New York City, a very, a very important one, which began to preach sermons in English in the 1750s. This is a clear sign of, uh, of uh, assimilation. But she also looked at other Dutch churches in Esopus, and uh, uh, up, 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 upstate. Okay? And they were still holding services in Dutch in the 1830s. 
So that whole area of the lower Hudson Valley, uh, northern New Jersey, including Ma down as far as Monmouth, is really a Dutch culture hearth. So that the Dutch wanted to continue to speak Dutch. Women were especially traditional in that way. The people they dealt with were likely other Dutch. And so it was a, a lingua franca for them. And the enslaved people that they owned, and as I said a few minutes ago, they, they continued to own a lot of them well into the 19th century. What else is, that would be their primary language. So uh, Negro Dutch, as it's called, was fairly common, actually, in that culture hearth. In 1704, New Jersey passed a law with draconian punishments for uh, black criminals, including things like branding and castration. Um, some accused criminals were tortured, put to death by burning. Um, it, it hadn't taken all that long for New Jersey to evolve into a full-blown slave society, as you identified in, in your book. Um, New Jersey would also be the last northern state to abolish slavery, uh, and even then it was essentially converting slavery into apprenticeship for life. Um, now, none of this uh, is typically taught to school children. Um, about our about this state of New Jersey. Uh, I don't know any teachers who, who unfortunately, who focus on these matters. Um, so more of a, almost a, a broad question here. To what do you attribute the whitewashing of my state's history? Is it ignorance, the ease of telling a binary story of the evil South and abolitionist North, uh, or maybe even a conscious effort made by bad actors? Well, the whole, you know, there's a very interesting book out uh, called How the South Won the Civil War. And they didn't went through military battles. We know that. Uh, and they went through a reconstruction, which they, there was an attempt to reform that didn't work. But after that, they began an ideological warfare, uh, arguing that war had been a mistake, that it was foisted on people by reckless abolitionists, and it allowed black people who were naturally inferior uh, goes the argument, uh, to occupy offices they should never have held, uh, to tyrannize white people. And gradually this melded with a full-blown racism in America uh, by the end of the 19th century uh, to convince not only Southerners, but also Northerners that the Civil War you know, had been a tragedy. Uh, and that lost cause, as it was called, uh, remains standard in American history textbooks into the 1950s generally, and I think is still taught in some form. Okay? Not, not as explicitly, perhaps, but one which people, a lot of people still adhere to. Uh, and it was up until the challenges made by black historians like Benjamin Quarles and John Hope Franklin, uh, Marion Thompson Wright, our, our beloved uh, New Jersey uh, black historian, uh, they challenge it. Uh, then also white historians like Kenneth Stamp, uh, C. Van Woodard begin to challenge. This is part of the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Okay? They begin to challenge it as well. And so we now see it very differently. Now, that said, not everybody changes at the same pace. Not everybody teaches the way that university professors want them to. Okay? Uh, and not everybody has gotten away from that idea 
the slave that the Civil War is a mistake. I mean, we can see that now just in the divides in this nation. They're split right along those kind of lines. There was a, a fascinating article by Thomas Edsel in yesterday's Times about just what the fault lines are in the United States and why we're a divided democracy compared to the other great democracies of the world. It all has to do with race. Uh, so New Jersey, uh, which has that combination of a lengthy past with slavery, uh, a long-term embrace of slavery by local people. I mentioned the Dutch, but also Scott-Irish, Huguenots, okay? uh, even some Quakers. Uh, I mentioned Corley's earlier on in, in, in this talk. Okay? Uh, there's that sense. Now, one of the things that I think it makes Jersey different from, say, Alabama, where the civil rights movement truly exposed the racism and brutality of that state's past is that Jersey is sort of like Connecticut, Massachusetts, in which there is an amnesia about slavery. People don't realize that it ever really happened there. They, people don't realize that black people have been living in New Jersey really since the 1620s. And most, and certainly since the 16, when it was really just part of uh, New Amsterdam, uh, and certainly since the 1680s, and they don't know this because they really haven't taken the time to to, to study the issue at all. They haven't been reading books. Um, so the whitewashing and also those older attitudes still are very strong. Uh, and in fact, recently they you know they've been uh, even encouraged. So it's you know it, this is not something that is a very simple, straightforward means of, of correction. And a lot of people don't want to be corrected. They want to believe those old things. And even if they're wrong, and they are very, very wrong, uh, they want to believe that, you know, slavery was good, the Civil War was a bad mistake, and that the North and South whites could unite on similar grounds and exclude black people. And that was the case up until the 1960s and 1970s. And as you know, that's still a very unfinished process. Um, I think there are signs of hope, although there's also a lot of signs of despair. Uh, the nomination of a black woman for the Supreme Court will be, I think, a terrific thing for the nation. Okay? It won't make up for the hardships that people have all across the country. It won't make up for the iniquities of uh, the pandemic, which have hurt people of color more than anybody else. Uh, but it'll be a great thing. And I will show the political power of black people. And that's so important. And I think also back to the state. Uh, you know, I did the book Black New Jersey. And there were a handful, one or two black representatives, black, black state legislators into the 1980s. And even in the 1990s, it's only been the last 20 years or so where black political figures have really begun to emerge. We have more mayors, or you have the election of Cory Booker. Okay? Uh, you have the lieutenant governor who's black. This is very recent stuff. And I think it's very positive, and I'm, I, I applaud it firmly. Um, but it's not as if the old things have gone away. They have to be worked on all the time. Yeah. And one of the things that 
that I am trying to correct about my own teaching is uh, focusing more on resistance. Um, you know, so not the the we don't want the story of uh, of of passivity that people in, engaged uh, their agency in a myriad of ways. Um, direct rebellion, arson, self liberation, work slowdowns, breaking tools, and so forth. Um, I want. Can you talk though about in, in you? You talked quite a bit about it in 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 Root and Branch. Can you talk about how religion became uh, uh, it was used as a form of resistance? It was religion was a form of resistance from the 1630s on, uh, and in New Jersey from the 17th century on. Uh, it's, it becomes a, a expressly a matter of resistance with the development of the AME Zion uh, Church uh, in the 1790s and the very rapid spread of that church uh, throughout New Jersey, uh, throughout the North, throughout the South. Okay. Uh, and AME Zion Churches are principal conduits for the Underground Railroad. Okay. Uh, their, their preachers are uh, proponents of black equality uh, and resistance to, to racism. Uh, so it's it's a very much of a liberation theology, even as it, sometimes it has to accommodate. It's a separatist uh, theology in some ways, but in other ways, it's uh, it's a means by which black people can gather together, worshiping God and a God that will be uh, resistant to slavery. Someone like uh, uh, Nat Turner in Virginia in 1831 expressly quoted the Old Testament. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's what he believed. You know, if you're going to kill someone in my family, I'm going to kill you. And I, you know, I don't work that way in my life. I, I take a much more pacifist view, but I have to respect what he's saying, and I have to honor it because it, you know, it's it's the kind of thing that is undeniable. Right? Now, back to your question about teaching, by the way, um, and I think it's going to also partially answer your question. When I teach Black history at Colgate, I do so under the rubric of things like the Age of Revolution, okay, uh, about uh, you know the 19th century, about New York City. I teach that a lot, so it's a significant part of the story of that period, okay? and it's undeniable. And it's not only an African American history; it's American history. You can't talk about the early 19th century in any way, really, without talking about the history of slavery and black people because they are a significant portion of the population. Uh, and their question is an unresolved issue which creates a terrible scar in the Civil War, which we still haven't figured out. So it's, it, this is American history. This is not just black history. And by the way, there are there are people at Colgate who do Black history, and I don't step. You know, I'm a good academic. I don't step on their toes. I simply incorporate that material into my overall course because I think that's the right way to do it. It's really part of American history. Previously, you uh, you mentioned uh, the book pretends to be free. Uh, which uh, compiles uh, hundreds of uh, fugitive advertisements of people who self-liberated. Can you just give a, a quick 
kind of snapshot of the most telling findings for you from that project, from looking through all of those ads? Well, there were so many of them, and I don't think it's a complete list. There are 800 of them. Uh, there were a lot more during the revolutionary period than earlier. Part of that's because there were more newspapers, but also because the attraction of the British lines again. Um, you know, these uh, ads are, historians love them because they can really count so many things. So you got 800 ads, right? Uh, so you find out things like languages, hairstyles, clothing. Okay? Uh, Blacks in New Jersey wore a lot of leather breeches that were homemade, so you didn't have a lot of money. Okay? But when you come to occupations, this is something interesting. This personally answers your question. Uh, overwhelmingly, the leading skill uh, for black men in these advertisements is fiddling. Uh, and the fiddle was a musical instrument that was inexpensive, uh, not that hard to play, especially if you were to practice at it. And while they didn't have records or CDs or, or streaming, uh, there were a lot of songs. There were English airs, there were African songs, there were Irish jigs. Uh, there were all kinds of musics that were taken around the Atlantic Basin by sailors, uh, brought over from Africa, brought from South America when people were sent up from uh South America to North America. Uh, so there, there is a world of music. And so these fiddlers would learn dozens, if not hundreds of songs. Why? Well, if they wanted to run away, and I'm not saying every fiddler wanted to do that, but a substantial number did. Once they're out there on the highway, they can go to a group of sailors, of field workers, of guys hanging around a tavern, and play for them and get money for that. And that will allow them out there in the world uh, to survive better than if they're simply walking around with nothing but the clothes on their back. So this is a means of making an income. In fact, such people are called songsters or physicianers. That uh, They just knew all of these, these songs and could play them. And you see them occasionally in, uh, in American art. Uh, I see a black fiddler uh, in 19th century art. Uh, they also danced a lot. Their blacks New Jersey would come over to New York and dance in the markets for money. Okay. Uh, so again, these are means by which fugitives uh, from slavery escape, survivors of slavery will be able to, uh, to, to keep going. Okay. Uh, I think that these people eventually wind up Later, in the Five Points in New York, uh, which Walt Whitman says produces a music which presages a grand American opera. Okay. Uh, this is the beginning kind of a, of jazz, okay. kind of a beginning of minstrelsy, uh, which has a very different connotation. But it's a popular music. And so if you want to find out where black popular music comes from, yes, it comes from New Orleans. Yes, it comes from the cotton fields of the South. But it also comes from the markets and the uh, the bad neighborhoods of New York City. Uh, well, let's just uh, let me follow up uh, on that uh, more generally. Uh, Giles Wright described the Revolutionary War period as a cultural metamorphosis of Africans becoming African Americans. 
so how would you suggest, how would you say that um, ways in which uh, music probably is one of them, but ways in which black people of disparate backgrounds formed a, a somewhat cohesive culture? Um, and, and does that culture in and of itself become a form of resistance? Well, I, I think Professor Wright was speaking about the American Revolution as, as and black participation. And now I've already talked about that a little bit, but I, I think that you also have to look at demographically that uh, there are substantial numbers of enslaved people sold into New Jersey in the 18th century. Uh, they come through New York, they come through Perth Amboy, they come through Camden. Um, and so some of those people now have been in America for several generations, okay, uh, owned by the same people or sold nearby to somebody who was a relative or a friend. So they really are Americans. Okay? I mean, by the 1780s, you have a substantial number whose lineage in America goes back 75 or 80 years. And then just as you would see an Irish or a German or Italian person basically American at that point, so you should see a black person the same way. Uh, the other thing I think it uh, happens is that uh, I thought I found this really fascinating is that in 1808, America ends its involvement, legal involvement in the Pacific or the Atlantic slave trade. It still continues, but it's illegal. Okay? And even though the Americans didn't put the kind of effort the British did do in, in uh, capturing uh, slave vessels, uh, it's still illegal. What does that mean? It means that whereas black people were the pro most the prominent numerically group of immigrants into the colonial America in the 18th century, the number of people coming from Africa after 1808 drops off to almost nothing and stays that way into the 20th century. And even then it's only a trickle. It's only really in the last, and it's really since... Uh, the Heart Seller Act of 1965, that you really see a substantial number of Africans coming in uh, to, to, to the country. So, I mean, at that point, any black person who's in New Jersey or Pennsylvania or New York and has a lineage, even just one generation, that person's American. They don't have the rights of white Americans. They're discriminated against heavily. They're often enslaved. All those things are true, but by identity, they're certainly Americans. The, uh, the name of your book, Root and Branch, comes from a chilling event that happened about a mile west of where I am <laughs> and five miles more north of where I teach. Uh, can you share, uh, can you tell the story for my listeners about what happened in Raritan in 1752? Well, it, it's, it, it's, kind of a, it's kind of an incredible story. You kind of alluded to this about the punishments earlier on. Uh, so there's a guy named Abraham Van Nest, who's a Dutch slave owner. Uh, in Raritan, and he had a, this also shows some of the peculiarities of a relationship in which there is a white person owning an enslaved person who lives in the same house, okay, maybe in the same room, because all those people didn't have, you know, 20, 10 room houses, they had one room houses, okay, and so he kept taking this guy's tobacco, and naturally, this is, this kind of practice is irritating to anybody, but it's worse when uh, the other person enslaves you, whips you occasionally, takes away all of what you have, 
And so I think that that unnamed slave eventually just reached a boiling point and he waylaid Van, Cle- uh, Van Nessen in Clefton. He cut his head off. Okay. Um, and nobody had any doubts about who did this. The next day they took the, this, this man out to where Van Ness's corpse and head, his headless corpse, corpse was uh, located, and they forced him to touch the head, at which point blood came out of the nostril. And the folk belief was that this wasn't evidence of guilt. Okay. Well, fortunately today, whatever problems we have with our justice system, and there are many, we don't use those kinds of methods. Okay. Uh, although you can make an argument that there are s- similar kinds of strands, but they're just much more deeply uh, uh, hidden. That said, so the, the, having had his trial, if you will, uh, and that's actually a quote from the, the proceedings, uh, the guy was taken off to uh, uh, the nexus of a couple of rivers and burned at the stake. And all of the enslaved people around were supposed to stand there and watch him die in this horrible circumstance. Uh, and as the flames were licking up his body, and you can imagine the pain he was in, he shouted out, they have taken the root, but they have left the branches. And I interpret that by saying that the branches still lived, okay, that the resistance was still there in everyone. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's true. And that's that's where I got the, the title from. Uh, I used to have arguments with my father about that because he thought it was illogical. But I think it, it, it works. Other thing I'll have to say about that is, you know, I mentioned that this is not good judicial behavior. Uh, yet there were a lot of these kinds of punishments, burnings at the stake, uh, breaking on the wheel, a... Uh, Garroting people with, with uh, huge swords and hanging them up in the air to die, uh, putting them in cages for the birds to pick them apart. All these really barbaric kinds of uh, punishments. And they were, they were done in New York, New York and New Jersey uh, right into the revolution. Where does this come from? There are, are people in, this is a Dutch scholar, uh, who argues that this shows the power of the state. Okay? This is an example of how the state is showing its power to intimidate enslaved people. And that may be partially true, but I think the other thing is going on there is that there were a lot of pre-modern, pre-rational beliefs in the state among white people. Uh, and that they simply believed that, that kind of desecration of the body was in some way a proper punishment. I think this is the kind of stuff that goes back into the Middle Ages. Uh, you know, it's interesting in terms of teaching, uh, whenever I teach the early American survey, and I usually get students who are not AP t- uh, students, and so they're, you know, but anyway, there's always five or six of them who want to work on the Salem witch trials. Well, why? I mean, you know, it was that was also a pretty bar- barbaric event. Uh, you know, and that's by the most rational, educated group of Europeans in America. The, the, the pilgrims, uh, Puritans. Uh, but they wanted to, so there's an attraction to this. Okay? Uh, and I, I think that there would be similarly an attraction to say, you know, what's going on here? You have to kind of associate this with the kind of retention of magic, of pre-modern beliefs, of spirits that people in the 18th century embraced, even as they 
held on the surface a kind of rationalized, biblically uh, uh, derived Christianity. Underneath there, there were some really very unusual pre-modern beliefs. Uh, I think, take another example on this, uh, John Brooke, who's a great scholar, uh, did one of his first books called The Refiner's Fire. And this is a study of the people in Connecticut who then moved to Vermont and upstate New York to become the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. And so he studied these people, and he found that kind of folk religion to be very, very strong with them. And I, I think the same thing is the case uh, in, in New Jersey, you know, that, uh, or New York, that there were a lot of ordinary people who held beliefs that were not rational Christianity at all. Uh, they may have read the Bible, but there were a lot of other things going on, and they used those in these uh, ferocious, brutal punishments. Um, I haven't had a chance to read your book on David Ruggles yet. Um, can you talk about uh, about him a little bit, uh, uh, black abolitionist in New York City? Sure. Uh, David Ruggles uh, was a free black from Connecticut. He was born in uh, 1810, dies 1849, so he has a very short, vibrant life. Uh, I first learned about him when doing the book on New York and New Jersey. I thought, this guy deserves more attention. Uh, same kind of... Uh, uh, Emphasis gave me the idea of doing this recent book on Marion Thompson Wright. But back to Ruggles. Uh, so I began to study him. And at first I found, you know, I found that there were a lot of things by him uh, in the abolitionist newspapers, that he was uh, a frequent letter to the writer, letter to the editor writer and editorialist, that he published his own pamphlets, that he established his own um, magazine, The Mirror of Liberty. Uh, and that he also was part of the Committee of Vigilance, which was dedicated to helping fugitive slaves become free, uh, to protect them when they got in New York. New York is a very pro-slavery uh, city in the 19th century, uh, to, uh, to protect people who come north, uh, to protect families against kidnapping. This is something that's a real stain on the history of New York and New Jersey, that black people would oftentimes be accused of being uh, fugitives when, in fact, they had been living in locally for decades. The fact that they were black was enough for uh, the accusers and also a magistrate to declare them enslaved people and have them sent to the South. So this is the kind of thing that where Ruggles really wanted to do. So I saw him as a whole-souled man, totally dedicated to the movement, uh, who gave everything to it. Uh, he was the person who welcomed Fre uh, Frederick Douglass, then known as Frederick Bailey, into uh, uh, New York City, kept him in his house for about a week before he gave him a $5 bill and letter of recommendation to go up to uh, uh, New Bedford, the slaves Gibraltar. Uh, so, I mean, he's a really interesting, seminal figure, uh, first black journalist, incredible warrior against slavery, uh, someone uh, who later becomes a water cure doctor. Okay? People may smirk at that today, but it was widely respected in the 1840s as a cure for a lot of ailments. Uh, and he established a hospital in Northampton, borrowed money from a lot of the uh, New England merchants around there, and they were not, they didn't give out money freely. So he obviously had a gift for convincing them that he was worth investing in. So, uh, I mean, that, that's kind of a short story on him. He dies in 1839. The movement really cost him his life. He was kicked downstairs. He, you know, 
was homeless a lot of the time. He never married. Uh, he had a number of ailments. He was blind. He had, probably had worms. Uh, and then eventually he dies very quickly in 18, 1849. And Frederick Douglass said, you know, that there's never been anybody like him. Uh, and I, I just thought he was somebody who was just, I mean, there are other black abolitionists, but he is really the, one of the first full-time activists. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to put you slightly on the spot for my last question, and hopefully you have something, you have, you'll come up with something for me. Um, you know, you mentioned Colonel Ty, I mentioned Samuel Sutphin, um, and you just mentioned how in the course of doing uh, your work, you came across David Ruggles. Who are some other key figures, names that, you know, we don't know enough about or, or we don't talk enough about? Well, I, let, let me put in a shout out. Let me put in a shout out for my most recent book, which is the Marion Thompson Wright Reader. And Marion Thompson Wright uh, was from Newark. Uh, and she was, she was born in uh, uh, 1903. Uh, her mother was a domestic for uh, a white people in Montclair. Uh, she uh, was a very good high school student. She went to Newark High. She was one of three blocks there. Uh, this was a time when, Education was integrated in, in Newark. Work wasn't, but education was. Um, then she suddenly had two children by this laborer, James Moss, dropped out of school. Okay. Later, two years later, she and her mother, encouraged by a local guidance counselor, she went back, graduated with distinction uh, in 1922, and applied and was accepted at Howard, but Howard didn't accept married women or women with children at that time. Uh, so she has a dilemma and what she did is she abandoned her children. Uh, she left them behind and uh, Moss got custody. Eventually uh, she did first an MA at Howard and then a PhD at Columbia. She's the first black woman to get a PhD in the discipline of history. Uh, she worked under Merle Curdy, a very distinguished social historian. Uh, and her dissertation was uh, the education of Negroes in New Jersey. So, uh, and then she also did a number of essays about the laws uh, in, in New Jersey. And she was a profound integrationist. She really believed that in the 1940s, things were you know, possibly going to get better. She was aware of all the hardships, but she also was, believed that the American system could work. So I, I think she's somebody I'd really like to give a, a huge shout out to. And uh, Rutgers put the book out. Uh, it's got Beautiful picture of her on the front cover. Uh, just you know, go to Rutgers University Press, put my name in or her name, and all shall be revealed. <laughs> Fantastic! I wish I could talk to you for another three hours, but uh, <laughs> you've been very generous with your time. Okay, I really well, appreciate you. it. Yeah. All righty. Well, great talking with you, and um, you know, let me know when this airs. Okay. <laughs> of course, I will. 